Welcome to episode 4 of Super Entertainment Presents the Telgen Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network. Then coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. In the studio tonight, we have Crazy Ivan Shabowski, Ghostbuster, Reanimator, Convention Panelist, and Lover of Cheese. And via Skype, special guest host Chris Nigro, author and crossover expert. And I am Robert Ronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. What is the television crossover universe? Well, when I was a wee boy, I started noticing that certain television shows were connected by crossovers. I started keeping track of those connected series in a notebook. Over time, I realized that these crossover connections went far beyond television to other mediums as well. I also started to learn that what I had originally seen as separate groupings of shared realities started to come together as one larger world, which I had dubbed the television crossover universe. Five years ago, I turned my years of notes into a website, and a year ago started publishing books based on those crossover finds. This podcast is another means to celebrate those writers whose work adds to the expansion of this shared fictional reality. All right, so I would like to greet our special guest host, Chris Nigro, um, who is coming back for a second week after being interviewed uh, by us the previous week. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you for assuaging my ego by having me as a guest host. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, our we're doing this funny thing where we're having our co our regular co host as a guest. <laughs> so yep, we and need, no one's even talking to me. No, we're ignoring so we're sad. ignoring you till after the commercial. You're not supposed to be here. Well, except we wouldn't <laughs> cut you off because we wanted you to hear us ignoring you. <laughs> it's fun. Okay. Weird is what we do. Hazing. That's how, that's what we do with our guests Technically, now. it's not hazing because, well, okay, I guess it's hazing. <laughs> yeah. I can't back that up. And, and of course, of course, the rub here is that, you know, we we had, like, two, like, super famous guys on our first two shows. So now I'm just bringing my friends on for all the other shows. Uh, friends that are published authors. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What do we need the exposure nevertheless? Yeah. <laughs> For the next like twenty episodes, I'm going to be the guest for every. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. People will never tune in again, and I'll be the one exposing myself. <laughs> All right, so uh, so Chris, we'll we'll start with you in our shameless plug segment. Um, is there anything uh, this week that you would like to plug? Well, I could always just say refer back to the things I said last week to be easy, but um, I should say. By all means, when I'm done with my superhero novels, Centurion and Moonstalker, which I'm building a shared superhero universe, please do buy them. I'm narcissistic enough to think they may be a good read, and I need the money. All right. And Ivan, how about you? Anything to plug this week? Well, last time I mentioned a game I'm working on. It is a crossover game in that it has archetypes from different types of fiction, uh, interacting together in a, a live-action version of Clue. But that's Ooh. all I'm prepared to say right now. All right. Awesome. That is awesome. All right, as for me, um, January 10th will be the, the fifth anniversary of the launching of the Intelligent Crossover Universe website. Now, when I originally created this website, it was because I was yelled at in another forum for mentioning Hannah Montana, and I... Created. To be fair, though, we all hate Hannah Montana. Right. And, and I do, too. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. Most of us hate Hannah Montana. And I do, too, which is why, even though I created this website so I could talk about Hannah Montana, <laughs> I have never done it. But on January 10th, I will post a Hannah Montana crossover chronology on our website. I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> So there, there, there's, there's my big announcement. For all those people who were kids 20 years ago, 10 years ago, when, whenever Hannah Montana 10 was 10 years on, ago. Yeah. Or, or, you know, all those people who like pictures of Miley Cyrus when she was young, uh, if you're that kind of person, I won't judge. Uh, the police might, but I won't. Uh, then, uh, um, are we getting an even worse audience than the Bronies right now? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm trying to top the My Little Pony. <laughs> so, so t- tune in. You know, we've been posting a lot of horror stuff. So now, Hannah Montana. <laughs> 
So uh, we're going to go to a commercial, and when we come back, we will talk with James Boyacek, our co-host, among other things. All right. Eventually, I'll be able to pronounce Grand Guignol properly. I figured it within a year. <laughs> well, that was a pretty good job there, Chris. I, I've been practicing. Uh, so <laughs> our guest tonight is actually our own co-host, James Boyachuk. Um, I at least pronounced his name correctly. Uh, when James isn't hosting this show, he's the CEO of 18th Wall Productions, writing his own stories, contributing to the Television Crossover Universe website, and sharing his crossover expertise in various forums. I first met James years ago in the Woldoon Family Discussion Group. Within that group, we ended up conspiring on the creation of a book club, which was actually a group within the group. Uh, that began the start of a long working relationship between the two of us. Uh, when I created the Intelligent Crossover Universe, James became one of our first trusted advisors on, the sh- on that website. Uh, his Wonderland timeline became the first contribution to the website not written by myself. Um, it was because of the uh, success of that contribution that I decided to create the TVCU crew, um, which allowed others to contribute uh, their ideas to my website as well. Um, James tongue-in-cheek, My Little Pony post, um, as previously alluded to, um, ended up doubling our viewership, maybe even tripling. And uh, at that point, yeah. And at that point, I invited James to become co-owner of our website since he brought in so many um, bronies to, <laughs> to the site. Uh, later, when I was looking it's for your fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Later, when I was looking for a publisher for the horror crossover encyclopedia, uh, James um, 18th Wall Productions was gracious enough to give this new author a chance, uh, which I'm very appreciative. Uh, and so it is my pleasure to introduce James Boyachuk. Good to have you as our guest tonight, James. And finally, you're paying attention to me. My existence is validated. Now it's all about you. And um, we're done. <laughs> Yay! Now that's our time for tonight. <laughs> now, before we get into the questions and discussion, I just have something I want to shamelessly plug now. Okay. So within a few days of this episode coming out, on January 15th, we will be releasing the first of our new publishing venture, I guess you could call it. All of the Sherlock Holmes novels are very short. If you printed them out in a normal publishing font, they'd run between 50 to 80 pages. So it's always weird when you go to the bookstore and there's this 700-page Sherlock Holmes novel. So all through 2016, we're going to be releasing one Holmes novel that's about the length of what Conan Doyle would have written. We're going to be releasing one on the 15th of every month up through December and then collecting them all into our own massive 700-page book. And coming out on January 15th, we have The Curious Case of the Clockwork Doll by Heidi J. Hewitt. And one of my rules going in as I was editing all of these submissions was I don't want to accept any steampunk stories. No steampunk. It's overdone. Mm. What's the interesting things to do with it? And then Heidi proved me wrong. It wasn't just one of the best stories. It was probably my single favorite submission. It captured Conan Doyle's style without being slavish or tired. And the case itself is fascinating, covering everything from murder, theft, strange ghosts wandering a rotting castle, and a child's stolen doll. It's really fantastic and probably one of my favorite things I've published. And that will be an ebook exclusive this January, and then it will come out in print around Christmas time 2016. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah. I, I, I personally don't get the appeal of steampunk, so I'm really interested to read <laughs> this story that turned you around. I must confess I published a steampunk story. and Don't hold that against me. <laughs> I, I was very fond of steampunk until I found out Chris published a story. Yeah. That'll do it. My favorite lady person right now loves steampunk, so I have nothing against steampunk. Uh, nothing you better admit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's I, I just don't get it. <laughs> but uh yeah. Uh, That's the case if you admit it. Yeah. So um so James, um we had three stories that we were specifically going to speak of of your work, but before we yes. got to those, I wanted to ask you some general questions. Shoot. Um so uh the first question I wanted to ask you was how did you get started in writing? Okay. I got started in writing 
and this will explain pretty much everything about me when my father told me stories every night before I went to bed. And this wasn't just, oh, I'm going to read you Dr. Seuss. It was, I'm just going to make up whatever comes to mind. So he would throw together, he had this long-running story series with Laurel and Hardy fighting Dracula. Oh. And this ran for about two years, just this constant series of sequels of them blundering into Bela Lugosi's Dracula again and again. And then, surprise, there were two Draculas, and it was also Christopher Lee's. Gasp! <laughs> the and then, and then this ended, and I really wish he would end this. Sto- he would have ended this story, but it's the most insane thing. But it was also my favorite. This was right about the time when I was almost too old for bedtime stories, mm. and it was this long, long story. I don't even know how many years it ran, but it started out as this really stupid thing with. Garfield. That Garfield. So the president. Yes. (laughs) So the dumb orange cat, he gets mailed to the Yukon, and he ends up stuck with Yukon Cornelius from the Rudolph special, Uh except reinterpreted as an actual serious Arctic explorer. And then they get shanghaied into 1850s Russia through time travel now. And they end up in this massive, gigantic war that all of the Cossacks are having against Dracula and his vampires. And then there's also an elderly Zorro thrown into this. It was better than it had any right to be. Wow. And, yeah, that probably explains almost everything about my writing. Yeah, I, the next question was going to be, what sparked your interest in crossovers? But I, <laughs> I, I think you just covered that. I Zorro think I versus did. Dracula <laughs> versus Garfield. I think, yeah, that, that's already a fairly strong crossover element. You need to reinterpret that and write that someday. <laughs> just found out your dad actually invented the TV crossover universe, not Rob? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I've really wanted to do the thing with an elderly Don Diego against Dracula. Mm. Because they had Zorro versus Dracula, right, but right. it's missing the drama of him being older and having trouble with his sword and still having to fight the and, Prince of Evil. And a noticeable lack of Russian Cossacks in that story, too. Right. That's true. Nice. Okay, so my other question I wanted to ask, um, and it's, it's relevant to, to your other stories as well um, and, and, and your recent plug, uh, why Sherlock Holmes? Here's the thing that's probably going to surprise everyone. I didn't read until I was 16. Like, I might have read enough books where I could just say, hey, I passed this grade, but I didn't like reading. I didn't really read at all. And if I did read, it was just quickly over with, so I didn't have to deal with it. And then, I don't know why, but I saw, hey, the complete Sherlock Holmes is on sale for like five bucks. I should get that. I don't think I'm going to like it, but I'll get it. And then I read all 1,500 pages of it in about two weeks or less. Mm. And I found, this is actually how I also got into more organized crossovers, Because, okay, I finished that in two weeks. I'm desperate. I need more. I need my fix. I'm a druggie now. And in Googling around, trying to find anything more that are good home stories, I found Wynn's website. So all at once, I have a reading list of like 600 pages long. Because now, Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula? What? Sherlock Holmes and Mr. Hyde? And all of these things, and that's even how I found Fu Manchu, which is another one of my favorite things. As much as people who try and pick up the torch later have messed up again and again and again and again. Yeah, pretty much all of my interest in literature and most of the things I like were because I stumbled into Wynn's website. And at the moment I started reading, that was basically a good two thirds of my reading list, finding all of these weird old ancient books. Nice. You know, Wynn's website actually um, is how I discovered a lot of a lot of characters that um, I later have have read that I hadn't. You know, I'd seen them maybe in a movie or or you know something, but you know, started reading the original works and, and stuff because of because of that website. Uh, hell, I found Lovecraft because of of Wynn's website. And, you know, obviously. Uh, we should probably say we're talking about Winscott Eckert, author of several very good yes. novels, and the. 
I forget the title of the book, the crossover chronology book. Crossovers. Crossover is a secret chronology of the world. Yes, that. Not to mention myths for the modern age. Yes. Yes. His website- oh, wait, I did mention it. <laughs> what was that, Chris? I almost said that um, his site was a total game changer for me as well. Introduced me to the broader world of PJF. That's Philip Jose Farmer, and I've been a major addict ever since. Yeah. I actually found Winsight because I was already a fan of Farmer and a friend who knew that I was writing fan fiction on the internet recommended I, I check out the uh, Wald Newton Universe stuff. Right. I, uh, yeah, I was familiar with PJF's work prior to that only with A Barnstormer in Oz, which was pretty fantastic because I liked the idea of taking something legendary in terms of literature and explaining the story behind the story. Yeah. Why was it a magical realm? How did its laws function? And yeah, and I like doing the same thing, so I was hooked. All right. So should we get into the yes. discussion, whatever proper? I yes. think we should. So uh, in preparing for the interview, um, I read uh, Nice Work If You Can Get It. Imprisoned Half Dead and the House of Zarnak Key. Um, now, Imprisoned Half Dead is found in uh, eight, 18 Walls uh, for Those Who Will Live Long Forgotten and also in the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia as a bonus story. Um, but the other two I, I got as um, manuscripts from you. Are they published? And if so, where can listeners find them? Nice work if you can get it has been accepted by Proceed Productions for their upcoming anthology. Hollywood mystery. Mm. I'm really excited for that. I, Nicole and I actually finished that story going on two years ago, and apparently it's just coming up for publication now. So I'm excited to see that finally reach print. Now met, mention your co-writer's uh, full name. Nicole Petit. Okay. She works with 18th Wall Productions, and she is in charge of the upcoming Scarlet Chase series. Mm-hmm. The first novel will be out this January. And then we're looking to have one book, either a novel or a collection of shorter stories about the Scarlet character, coming out like every six months, more or less. Sweet. Okay, and how about The House of Zarnaki? Is that found anywhere? It has been published on John Lidwood Grant's fantastic blog, Grey Dog Tales. Okay. I've also submitted it to appear in Sargasso Volume 3, which is the annual journal of William Hope Hodgson's studies. The editor of that, Sam Gafford, really liked it. He published my previous Karnacki Wald Newton article in the last volume. It hasn't been officially accepted yet, and I wonder if my email got eaten by the internet. But I have submitted it there, and I know he liked it, so probably you'll be able to read it there as well. Sweet. So, um... I read well. I've read, read, read "Imprisoned Half Dead" quite a while ago. Um, the other two I read last night because I always wait to the last minute to to do my homework. <laughs> um, I, I got to say, nice work if you can get it. Um, when I when I got into it, at first I was like, "Wait, what is this? Is this like a you know?" If you're um, for the for those who don't know. Um, it's a, it's a story with Ginger Rogers and Lucille Ball as the main characters. And um, it actually um, seems to be inspired, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, James, from some autobiographical information. And then, like, that, and that was kind of vague, and then you filled in the blanks. Yes. And, the story behind the story. Yeah. And it, it, started, it, it starts off, I thought it was, like, going to be some kind of, like, weird romantic comedy. And I'm like, what kind of crap is. James gave me to read and it turned into like the a, best kind of crap well it quickly turned into a murder mystery spy thing that was that, that I was like oh I'm in for a ride and uh, it was really impressive um, so I figured out from the ending who Hank was um, yes who was Jimmy spoilers I actually thought this is the one everyone would have picked up on Jimmy Stork oh I did not pick up on that, and uh, yeah, and it, it was haunting me all night long. <laughs> Jack Warner was one of the famed Warner Brothers, am I correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay, just so people know what we're talking about, this is a murder mystery that's set in 1930s Hollywood, and it's modeled on those 
hour-long B-movie murder mysteries that would always just throw in spies as the explanation, too. So we're using all of the tropes. We're using the same style of snarky, endless dialogue and really playing up all the old tropes of those wonderful B-movies. Yeah, it's a, it was a beautiful story. I, I, it, really, it was really fun. Um, it really had that feel. Um, something about your work... That I that I've always found is you really capture the the, the feel of whatever genre you're you're, you're writing in, um, like it feels like it could be from that period or or whatever. Um, I want to talk crossovers. I don't know I don't know if that's too much spoilerishly, but I wanted is that. I work? think we can say that it's involved without saying quite how it's involved, because I'm pretty sure there's a specific one you're thinking of. Well, I I caught. Um, Three crossovers. Um, okay. Um, Sherlock Holmes, even though it's no relation, uh, <laughs> there, there was definitely there was definitely inference in that there that other person exists. Yes. Um, Indiana Jones. Yes. And Doctor Who. Yes. You yes. mean the Doctor? What's that? You mean the Doctor? He means the franchise in I'm general. I'm talking about the series. Oh, the series. My- yeah. So, yeah. what Doctor Who characters did you spot? Um, just, just, just one companion. Yes. Yeah. There's also some more in there. Oh, I'm gonna. We hit them very the well, and dog? that's why I'm not going to reveal it. Uh, we wanted to see if anyone would find them, so that's the most clue you're getting. There's a lot more. Okay. Yeah. Well, what fascinates me about your writing, James, which I'm very impressed of, which you could really write a book about. A technical writing book about is how do you manage to get period writing so well in terms of the slang that was used, references to pop culture of the day, and also getting the style written exactly as a story of that era would have been written and published. Well, I think I can answer for Nicole and I. One thing that both of us loved the entire time we were growing up was old movies to the point where we prefer the 30s to now and we can quote entire books of history at you. We know it so well that it's basically like talking about it is just going out the door and describing our driveway. So that's a huge reason why we're able to do that. I think some of the writing that's more pulpy, she hasn't read a whole lot of pulps, but she has that style. In fact, we write so similarly that I think it's very hard to tell where she picks up and I end. Mm. Well, it was really like a time capsule, so I was fascinated with it on that level. Thank you. That's really what we tried to do. We wanted to do something that could have been published in one of those weird old Hollywood adventure magazines. Like how Ginger Rogers actually had a mystery novel published about herself. Her mom wrote it. Mm. It's the most wonderfully bizarre thing that there is a history novel from the period written for young girls starring... Ginger Rogers. But what's really interesting is it's not the real Ginger Rogers. It opens with a foreword talking about how there's different worlds out there. Mm. And if probability had been different, this is what Ginger Rogers could have been like. So Ginger Rogers' mom in the 1930s is one of the first things about alternate worlds. Wow. She's one of the first uh, multiverse authors. It's like one of it's like these individuals were our predecessors, dare I say. Sure, go ahead. You can say it. <laughs> they are just like our predecessors. Wow, that is profound. I never thought that I would that I would, I would have to pay homage to uh, uh, Ginger Rogers' mother. <laughs> the world is surprising. Yeah, you you know you really captured uh, Ginger Rogers and Lucille Ball's um, voices, like like the dialogue, uh, you know their actions. You know, I mean, especially Lucy. You know. Um, you, at, All of that credit goes to Nicole. She you know. really has the strong handle on how they act, and she would constantly go in and after me and make sure everything that they said and did was perfect. Yeah, you know, the television crossover universe obviously um, has a big focus on Lucy uh, and her characters, and um, so so naturally, I am a big fan of Lucille Ball, and uh, yeah, her her whole mannerism throughout the whole thing was. Was was definitely how I would picture her. And it, it was re- I was really impressive. Yeah, 
And we're talking about the pre-Desi Arnaz Lucy here. Yes, yes, we're, yep. ta- we're talking about... We're talking pre-Redhead Lucy. Yeah, yeah, back even before her radio show. So yeah. there are things in the story which sort of acts as, what, uh, um, a precursor to her becoming a redhead? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely references to that. Yeah, lots of references to everyone's career. Very subtle. So I'm, I'm curious if anyone's actually going to catch them all, but we had too much fun. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I didn't get that the, the other one was Jimmy Stewart. Um, and, and I didn't get Hank was Henry Fonda until, in, until the bit at the end. Um, I think he's the hardest one to pick out. Yeah, but, um, but, it, yeah, but, but the, 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 the two girls, before even you drop the last names, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yes, this takes place during Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely got that that this that the events of Raiders was was definitely going on at the same time. Because we thought, okay, it's weird that the government wouldn't send Indy to Cairo, and you would assume Indy's keeping them up to date by telegraph. So why aren't there anyone in Egypt to support him, help him get the Ark out of the country safely? You'd figure the government would have something set up, some kind of failsafe something to make the mission actually work. So this is our explanation why Indy was entirely on his own all through the Egypt parts of Raiders. So you're what went wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when, when I, I got to say, when I was reading that one paragraph with that dialogue, once I finished the paragraph, I stopped, interrupted my son from what he was doing, and reread that to him. <laughs> to see if he got the reference, and he absolutely did. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it, also, it was worth it. <laughs> I also like, James, what you did is you captured the idea, and this is another heads up for your prospective readers, the idea of the conception of Hollywood at the time is really, I believe you even called it at one point, a fantasy land. It was considered, I mean, it got the name Tinseltown for a good reason. It was cons- it was so- It was relatively new at the time, but it was also considered the place where dreams were made, and somehow you really, really caught that attitude. It's, it's got to be read to be appreciated, though. Yeah, that was one of our main things that we really wanted to do. So and what, subtly contrast that fantasy land with how drab modern Hollywood is. And I think it worked, because back then, I mean, well, what do you basically see Hollywood at that time compared to now? Compared to now, story was king, story, acting, and directing, instead of now where spectacle is king. So that's really what sets it apart and probably why the fantasy land elements of the past are so strong. Well, now it's just what's biggest, what's loudest. What's going to bring in the dollar? Is it possible that the MGM's 1939 production of The Wizard of Oz may have been the first move towards what you refer to as spectacle? Only in the vaguest possible terms, because that really comes in much, much later after the 80s. Because it starts really with Star Wars, when that single-handedly saved Hollywood by being the biggest, loudest thing ever. It's still a great movie. It's still a wonderful movie. It still has story, acting, and directing as king. But that's really where the door starts opening, and then it's fully open by the time Michael Bay becomes king. But back then, Casablanca and it's like we're king. I wouldn't say Casablanca is a good example because they didn't have a script. (laughs) And it's just the most thrown together mess of a movie. And I don't like it, but I will proudly say it turned out better than it had any right to turn out. I would say good examples are pretty much any movie from 1939. Adventures of Robin Hood, Wizard of Oz, Gunga Din. The Bluebird? What? The Bluebird? With that's what killed Shirley Temple's career. Yeah, her career was dead before then, unfortunately. But she made a real comeback with her 40s movies, so whatever. Yeah, I'm biased with Casablanca because all those cool sayings like, here's looking at you, babe, and I believe this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship started there. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you're writing your script pages right before they're acted. You need something, Punchy. <laughs> and they punched a dramatic extent it's now part of cult, pop cultural history all right so i want i want to focus on some of your other stories too before we run out of time james okay. um so in prison half dead uh first i wanted to say uh again like 
and I've told you this before, um, I really felt you really captured the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, when you wrote this one, uh, especially since it's a Sherlock Holmes story that you where you really um, don't mention that he's Sherlock Holmes um, directly, you know, for for most mm-hmm. of it, um, and you kind of just figure it out, you know. Uh, so I probably just spoiled that for everybody. Sorry. <laughs> it's still a great story. <laughs> um, and, of course, this one had um, crossovers in it. Um, uh, we had, um, I covered this in the horror crossover encyclopedia. This one had, you know, it was a Sherlock Holmes story, but it had alluded to War of the Worlds, uh, William S. Baron Gold's um, Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street and The Prisoner. Um, yep. But, but um, as you noted in the volume, it also... Um, was intended to be a story that explained Holmes' later life in yes, certain stories. because Baring Gold kills Sherlock Holmes off in 1957. So if everyone really wants to accept his biography as at least mostly canon, how are you also going to accept stories that have him alive and well later? So... No, he got carted off to a prison camp because the current English government desperately wants to know who killed Jack the Ripper. Right. But I'll be honest. I don't know. <laughs> I will say, James, you dragged the character through the meat grinder, I think, more than he has ever been in any published story before. Possibly. Yeah, it was really good, cool to see him in such an um, action-oriented, um, like, escape and interrogation and, and, and all that stuff. But he was still Holmes, you know? Uh, yeah. Unlike, um, I mean, I enjoyed the the newer Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr. But um, yeah, I but, liked the first one. The second one, this was partly response to that because let's put Holmes through even more of a grinder, but he's one hundred percent Holmes the whole time. Right, right, exactly. Uh, this also came from those two really, really awful Holmes stories Doyle wrote near the end of his life, mm-hmm. where he's first person Holmes. And the thing I've always struck me when I read them, which is rare, is. Holmes doesn't talk like this. Holmes never talked like this. What are you doing, Arthur? Stop doing this. No. So it's really from those two places. Let's drag Holmes through the mud, but he doesn't stop being Holmes. And let's write a story how he actually talks. Right. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, even though I think those two movies had um, the character in a way. fun. But I didn't. and And I think the character was portrayed... Um, in a, you know, as described in the books, but yeah. the, but the storytelling wasn't told in Doyle's style of storytelling. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I yeah. really do like the first one a lot. I think it's one of the better Holmes movies out there. The second one, eh. the second <laughs> one is just it's Guy Ritchie doing an adventure movie. It's good. It's just not Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Well, I think the second movie um, goes back to that that Hollywood thing we were just talking about. Like, hey, the first one made money. Quick, let's make another one. You know? Uh, Whereas the first one, I think, was probably thought out better. The thing that astounds me about this, and I'm not going to waste too much time talking about it, is how much of a mess it was in the first draft. Because some of the DVDs of that movie come with what he pitched to the studio, Guy Ritchie. And it's insane. It's absolutely bonkers because it actually is a magical quote unquote drug war through the streets of London with Aleister Crowley's Temple of Horus going up against Rasputin and everyone's trying to get Merlin's gem to summon up demons. Wowzers. And somehow it turned into a good movie. Was also interesting about your story, James, is that you had... Holmes focusing his legendary steel will into survival rather than deduction. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. And Holmes would thumb his nose at you and say, intelligence is survival, my dear boy. And he proves it like never before in that story. (laughs) Yeah, and absolutely. He used his deductive reasoning to survive, you know. I still love the way he turns the torture back on them just with their things they hide about themselves. That's still one of my favorite things I've written. Psychological warfare. Getting them to reveal information to him. Absolutely. Yeah, I would never want to be the guy that has to interrogate Sherlock Holmes. 
and you don't want to know how he can turn food into a weapon. <laughs> Is it explosive farts? <laughs> because that's how I turn food into weapons. A little more original than yours, Ivan, if not, ex well, not exactly as unpleasant. Okay. All right. So, so um, on the house of Zarnaki, um, Zarnak, parentheses, E, on parentheses, um, first of all, it was a great concept. Um, you know, it really made sense to me reading that. Um, I wanted to ask, um, can you elaborate on how you were inspired by Rick Lay and Matthew Bow? Well, first, I really just wanted to do the most traditional Walt Newton article I possibly could. Right. Just as a writing exercise, because why not? Plus, I've gotten in the habit of doing an article on Karnacki every year. I did one that mentioned him kind of two years ago. Then last year, I did the big one on the hog and how it runs through all of the author's works and they come from wonderland because i always run around the same wheels right. so then this year i did the most traditional Walt Dune article i possibly could which is genealogy and what struck me about it was what originally gave me the idea to do this is just reading that story where karnaki's mother is and everything's described everything's given a name we get way too much detail about every single pointless stupid thing but not his mother we get nothing about her except for the bare bones of what we need for the story to work and that's weird there has to be something going on there so then i went looking through different characters out there seeing what fit what could possibly explain a why his mother's such a skeletal presence and b why isn't his father mentioned at all in any way so looking through that yeah that's basically where it started and then following different threads and i also really wanted to explain the stupid habit authors have of putting karnacki in the 1880s and 1890s right he would have been five years old right Exactly. Well, you weren't solving mysteries when you were five? <laughs> I Unfortunately, no. <laughs> and I never knew his mother was anorexic. I think you missed that. They missed that one, Ivan. You mean about being skeletal? Oh, they did. Yeah. Joke just bad. All right. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. We, we caught it. We just chose not to acknowledge it. As usual. Yes. Okay. So, but James, yeah, do you? Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, James. Ahead. Could you agree with me maybe that there's still a place in Paris scholarship for articles as well as fictional prose? Yeah, there's always going to be a place for fake articles about things. It's a fun little diversion. Absolutely. And it gives you a ground for writing more stories. Like, I'm honestly going to be approaching Robert M. Price, who is the executor of Link Carter's Will, to see about maybe writing a Zarnak story based around this. Because I've had an idea for a quote-unquote Karnacki story for a couple of years now. The many deaths of Thomas Karnacki. Because every author that uses Karnacki decides to kill him off in a different way. John Lidwood Grant just has him die in 1913 and he's reduced to ash. That's in the last Edwardian series, which is really fantastic. Simon R. Green has him live until like the 50s or 60s. Mm. Joshua Reynolds kills him off in World War I, and there's like two or three other variants of how he dies. So I really would like to explain that, could using Zarnak as the person investigating it. Well, could you maybe even explain how he allegedly turned up a few times as an adult in the 1880s? Is that possibly on your itinerary? Yep, because the Karnacki in the 1880s is Zarnak, Karnacki's dad. Awesome. Okay, I'm glad you couldn't let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> Right. He did mention genealogy was a big part of this. Yeah, I, I, I really, appre I really appreciate when, when a, a writer takes the time and effort to, um, you know, come up with a way of including something rather than excluding it. Uh, you know, as a crossover, so that's, it's kind of my thing too. And that's world building right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I try to be inclusive, too, because I figure, you know, why not be less lazy than just say, okay, but this we throw out. Well, sometimes there are things that don't fit together. Right. Granted. granted yeah. Sometimes I, it's too hard. And then you got to say alternate universe or 
or just ignore it altogether. But yeah, things like Mist for the Modern Age and 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 those kind of articles, um, you know, there's a lot of work gets put into them, and uh, and and they're really good reads. Oh, and to answer your question. Rick Lye was really important for figuring out what on earth Karnacki's mother could be that no one talks about her, no one describes her, and none of the other people in Karnacki's house even see her. She goes away before he has anyone else come into the house, which is really bizarre. So Rick Lye was really important for figuring that out because he mentions maybe Zarnak had a Tico Tico bride. Okay, then. That's a good reason not to show your mom to anyone. Mm. She is an Eldridge terror from Tibet, mm. half human. That's a good reason to hide your mom. Or maybe she yeah. was just a nag and she embarrassed him a lot. <laughs> Another good reason to not mention her, but maybe not as good a reason for explaining his particular range of abilities. Okay, granted. <laughs> Just being going with Okam's razor there. And Matthew Ball was important for nailing down the date when the rumor started that Zarnak's family had died. He places it right around the exact time that we would need for it to be Karnaki. Cool. All right. Uh, was there any other works of research that you uh, used to come to your conclusions for that article? Um... I used my library's inner loan service to get me the Zarnak book. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so actually, I actually want to turn this a little bit to um, the television crossover universe. Um, okay. Since you have a little bit of involvement in that. A little. Um, so I know you're busy writing professionally these days and publishing and now hosting a podcast as well. Um, but also, I wanted to inquire if you uh, had any future um, contributions for the Intelligent Crossover Universe I website. Do. The Time Machine one is almost done. I really just need to force myself to go through all of the Rook comics and put them in, and then I'm done. Rook comics? I know a guy who's really knowledgeable about those. <laughs> really? I had no idea. <laughs> Indeed. I'm sure that guy's out there somewhere. <laughs> we'll have to find him. I don't know if we can. Uh, he could be closer than you think. <laughs> but I need—I have all of them. I just need to read through them, put them onto the timeline, and that's over. Because otherwise, it's a really long thing. It's probably the longest thing I've done that's not Wonderland. Yeah. Let me just see how many pages it's up to now. Because it's going to double probably once I put the rook in. Yeah. And it is up to... Ten pages. Single-spaced. I wow. can't wait to have two weeks um, of free time to read that. <laughs> and um, so, so uh, I know Bill and Ted is in the works for after the third movie comes out. Is that correct? Yep. I might do it sooner because they kind of blew up a lot of the things that I was having trouble with, so it doesn't even matter anymore. Okay. Like, they explain the whole Time Lord thing. So that's out. Uh, time Lords came to Earth and stole their designs. Uh, and that's where the TARDIS came from. So all of the complex things that I had little bits of evidence for, nope. <laughs> Canon overruled it. Yeah, the so more it recent honestly, had that one. So I might just... So it'll go quickly now, because there's not a whole lot. I might wait until after the third one. I might not. We'll see. Will a certain DeLorean be included? Um... I haven't decided if I'm counting the very first of the Halloween horror shows before it became a parody show. It was actually, it had a plot that worked. And it was just different, month. it was Freddy Krueger trying to kill Doc Brown and then he crashes into the phone booth and then they have to stop Freddy. I can buy that. And, and I know the, the crisis has been coming for five years now. Yes. <laughs> well, again, that might actually come now because the biggest part was making a lot of little things work, yeah, and yeah. a lot of those little things are gone now. So, yeah, it'll be much shorter now. The crisis? Are we talking about of infinite Earth or like menopause? Oh, I yes. thought maybe menopause yes. you were talking about. Okay, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, our, our own TVCU take on how the crisis would have affected our version of the multiverse. Yep, but it's also a lot more freeing because now I don't need to worry about getting little things to make the big things work. Now, 
as much fun as it's going to be, it's also much more straightforward. Yeah. That's something no one ever thought they'd say about the crisis. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to ask, so of all the, the TVCU posts you've done already, which one was your favorite? My favorite was the one about Sherlock Holmes's ghost, the Holmes Tulpa. That one's by far my favorite. Yeah, I love that. And it's also another explanation for, for Holmes crossovers, you know, in the later, later time periods, um, which I appreciate. Um, Any way to include more stories that, that feel contradictory. Yeah, and it fixes some of the weirdest things, like that whole bizarre real Ghostbusters episode with the Tulpa Holmes. Right. And James, as far as you're concerned, um, Mr. Holmes is not living well in Tibet right now? No, as far as I'm concerned, he's dead. He died in the 1960s. Around 110 years old. I will play nicely with anyone who wants him to still be alive, but... I feel that goes way too much against the spirit of the character. And I let him go away to peace. <laughs> of course, I also decided that all of the different Holmes ripoffs and continuations were part of a secret thing of the U.S. Not U.S., sorry. English government so they could have agents. And that program always goes badly. Because, hey, now I've explained Sherlock and Elementary and Death Note. <laughs> and Watson and Holmes and all of these other weird things that are floating around out there. And Baker Street, which is probably my favorite. You just made me wonder about a possible Sherlock Holmes and James Bond connection. Too much to hope for? Probably. I have a completely different explanation for Bond when I actually get around to writing it. I look forward to it. Which is the Daniel Craig Bond. Since we have time, we'll just go into it. Because... Okay, the Alex Ryder novels are bizarre. Yeah. I mean, the first few just seem like, oh, okay, we're basically just doing Nancy Drew Hardy boys, but with a super spy kid. But then about midway through, they get really bizarre. Like, absolutely bonkers bizarre. You find out that there is this elite criminal cult that's ruling the world. And here's where it gets weird. There's nine of them. They have secret parties for their thralls. These parties, it's, and you know how in Philip Jose Farmer's Immortal Nine series, they right. have these animals who have a skull cap placed over their brain so they can be controlled by manipulating their fear and anger responses. Right. These guys have it. They use the same guns that Farmer gave his group. They have, and all of the surviving people, all the people who survived, not people, all the immortals who survived Farmer's Nine books are in this Alex Ryder series. Like, there is a one-eyed Hebrew. There is this ancient woman of unknown ancestry. All of these things. He's picking up from it. But also in that book, it's a direct sequel to James Bond. Like, he's very clever about not making it clear, but Alex Ryder has a father and an uncle. They're brothers. And I believe it's mentioned somewhere that their mother comes from the tropical area, but he's very subtle and he builds this into James Bond, the authorized biography where honey child Ryder has two sons by bond. So that's my explanation for the Daniel Craig bond. He is Alex Ryder's uncle. Mm -hmm. He disappears during the books. He doesn't die. He just disappears. And even better, he's blonde. Oh, excellent. So keep it in the family. Yeah. Yep. So oh. Daniel Craig then would be Bond's son by Honey Child Rider. Also of Irish descent, according to one of the movies. Yep, he would be half Irish. Not Irish, Scottish. Oh, that was close. All right. So were you. Okay, so we, be, we're, we are running short on time. Um, well, okay. not, not short, but we're actually on time. Um, before we wrap up, um, are there any other current or upcoming projects that you'd like to plug? Um, let's see if I have anything that's actually coming up near enough to be worth plugging right now. Um, no, everything else is pretty far out. All right. How I will be writing, I'll be co-writing more stories with Nicole. We'll be doing a whole book of short stories about her Scarlet character. Oh, good. Who you may have already met. Uh-huh. 
in tonight's story. I won't say anything more, but you might have. Peachy. A plus. <laughs> and let's see. Aside from that, nothing I can really plug yet, either legally or illegally. <laughs> oh, my God. Actually, right. I will throw this out there. We're, I'm going to be starting um, audio drama podcast with Mary Helen Norris in a oh, few nice. months. And it is going to be about a crazy old man who runs a conspiracy podcast on the internet. But then maybe he gets a little too close to the truth. Oh. Like Alex Jones, right? He's much more British, but yes. <laughs> All right. And um, how can people follow your work on social media? You can follow Just Google me. My Little Pony. Yes. <laughs> Google my name. I have a blog that I really need to update. You can always find out what I'm doing with 18th Wall on our website and on our Facebook page, which is just Facebook slash 18th Wall and 18thwall.com. We are really easy to find. And, of course, you can always just follow me on Facebook. I'll friend almost anyone in the world. Oh, you're one of friend those. me? Yeah. <laughs> your proof. <laughs> now he has a friend. Yay! <laughs> All right, James, thanks for being our special guest for, for tonight. Next week, we'll put you back to work as, our, as a host. Um, I don't know. I kind of like being the center <laughs> of attention. Let's just make this the James Boyich crossover <laughs> universe show. Okay. Um, so we're going to go to commercial, and then we will wrap up when we come back. Well, that's about all the time we've got. Uh, thanks again to Chris Nagro for joining us for a second week. Um, thanks for again to James Boyacek for being our spotlight guest for this episode. Uh, join us next week when we'll be talking with author MJ Starling, known among other things for his continuation of the world of Karnaki. Uh, before we end, I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, this week, uh, the show is uh, sponsored by Loki Carbis, who donated to our GoFundMe um, fundraiser for, for the studio fees. And also uh, MyFace, the most generic uh, social media site out there. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music. Thanks to all who listened. Remember, everything happens somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>